American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com. American Timelines by History for Jokes, the greatest podcast ever. To Anna. Welcome to another episode of American, American Timelines. I'm Amy. And I am a half-eaten bag of Funyuns okay. that have been animated by a magical wizard mm-hmm. from um, another realm. Okay. And um, so I've come to life and now you can all hear what it's like to speak to a half-eaten bag of Funyuns. Okay, that's Joe. I'm and Joe. this is the uh, podcast that brings you all the crazy, fascinating events from pop culture crazy history. Crazy stories that you won't and, believe happened. And we do it year by year. And we cover crazy music songs that were the top songs. You won't believe sometimes what the songs were. Yep. And Amy's going to tell you a crazy crime story or a murder or an abduction. And then and what, we'll do what we call crime lines. We'll tell you what was going on during those murders to kind of put you in there. You're just bringing in the crime lines. Crime lines, y'all. That's Ryan Burkett. Copywritten by Ryan Burkett. But uh, no, it's, it's a crime line is a thing. And so it puts you, I've had people tell me like, oh, I now know when that murder happened because I remember that episode of Sanford and Son. Thank God for them that they listened to this podcast and that happened. Yeah, it did. A lot of people stopped me on the street like, hey, yeah. keep up the crime lines, bro. Okay. And some people like the sports that we talk about. Some people like the songs. Some people get upset when we hate songs. And they mail us hate letters. All right. Where did we leave off? We left off. This is episode 41. So thank yes. you for listening. We're, we're doing this enough so that we like doing this enough that we have 41 episodes this yeah. will be our 41st episode under our belt pretty sweet without a lot of podcasts make it someday i'm gonna go back work. and listen to the first one. Oh, i'm i hesitate to it's <laughs> gotta be terrible <laughs> we didn't even wanted... do anything then like we didn't even research anything like we yeah. just read off the internet i know <laughs> uh, a guy at work a bartender i know told me that he listened to it and he, he thought it was pretty good i was like oh it gets way better that sucked yeah, no and kidding. he liked it, but I was like, oh, well, but he doesn't know about podcasts. But anyway, we're in 1975. We left off in, I think, in March, the end of March of 1975. Okay. Uh, but we're going to bring you back into the spring of 75 when everybody had giant sideburns filled with cocaine. Giant sunglasses. And giant sunglasses. And Hats. every commercial was for Marlboro uh, everywhere. Everybody smoked cigarettes. Marlboro or Anison. Yeah, Anison, and everybody smelled bad, and uh, nobody showered. I think everybody they showered. Had, everybody had dirty hair. No, I'm <laughs> Soap didn't work. going a little far, I think. No, I don't know. It's just like what I remember. Uh, you, you were living on the Lark side. I, of course, I wasn't born yet. Hey, you don't have to disparage the Lark side. I wasn't born yet still. We're still 75. We're still a year before I was born. But we got to go quick because we got a lot of stuff to cover. Yep. And if we want to get through 75 in, in these episodes, we got to just jump right in. So All right. I'm going to jump right into April 5th. Um, which uh, with the number one song okay. on the Billboard charts by Minnie Ripperton. Okay. You know who Minnie Ripperton is? Do you remember that name? Uh, faintly. You'll remember it when uh, I play this for you. Um. Oh, yeah. The South Park song. Loving you is easy because you're beautiful. A lot of people remember that from the Big Gay Al episode yes. on South Park. That's what we mostly know it for, where they would... I thought it was the brown note. Wasn't that the brown note episode That's where it made people put their pants? Yeah. Um, I found something online that said it's supposed to make people explode or something. Um, but oh. I, I thought it was poop their pants, but I could be remembering I it didn't, wrong. I didn't remember what the episode was about at all. I just remember seeing it on there. Yeah, it, I, I think according to Wikipedia, it is the Big Gay Al episode, which we loved. Loved, yeah. And our friend Brian McCartney was Big Gay Al for Halloween. That's right. It was probably his best Halloween costume. It <laughs> was just hysterical, like yeah. Uh, yeah, and so 
that makes two friends of ours that look just like South Park characters when they want to. Uh, Who's the other one? The chef. Our buddy oh. D. Jones. D. Jones was the chef one year That's in college, right. and he yeah. won every contest. And <laughs> he just put on a red shirt, and he had he already had a big beard. And, and the chef's and hat. wore a chef's hat. And he, everywhere he went, he won. Everybody just like, oh, forget it. He's yeah. the winner. That's, that's the best pretty good. costume ever. Um, anyway, I I don't think I ever even heard of that song until that South Park episode. Yeah, I don't know if I had either. But it was produced by Stevie Wonder and Richard Rudolph. Okay. Um, and it was, yeah, there's really not much else to say about that song. But All right. I think people loved it in the 70s. Yeah, I think they did. All right, what else? It, it's like it's like one of those songs that would be perfect while somebody's doing a whole line of coke and then murdering somebody like that's in the background. It'd be awesome for a movie. What? Well, you're the one who loves murder. So then Tuesday, April 8th, that same week, the 47th annual Academy Awards were presented. Okay. At the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, California. The ceremonies were presided over by... What 18 washed-up actors were, were there? It was four people. You want to guess? Uh, Liza Minnelli. Nope. Oh. Shirley MacLaine. Well, I thought you wanted me to guess. Well, you got the woman wrong. The other three are dudes. Are dudes? Are dudes oh. And two of them are in the Rat Pack. Uh, Tony Bennett? Nope. Sammy Davis Jr.? Yep. And... Frank Sinatra? I got chunks of guys like you in my stool. Ooh, all right. Frank Sinatra. And? And then the other one is a comedian known for uh, doing bits in front of uh, troops. Oh, Bob Hope. Bob Hope. Okay. Bob yeah. Hope. Uh, Bob Hope, Shirley MacLaine, Sammy Davis Jr., and Frank Sinatra. This was the last year that NBC aired the ceremonies before ABC secured broadcasting rights, which they still hold to this day. Oh, I didn't realize that. The big deal on this year was, again, a Godfather thing. The, the Godfather Part Two received twice as many Oscars as its predecessor, uh, which is six, and it duplicated its feat of three Best Supporting Actor nominations as of the 90th Academy Awards, the last film to receive three nominations in a single acting category. Okay. And... Uh, yeah, some other stuff. Um, this was the only Oscars where all nominees in one category were released by the same studio. All five Best Costume Design nominations were for films released by Paramount Pictures. Oh, okay. And this is the whole thing where it wraps up. Don Vito Corleone is the only fictional character to have received more than one Oscar for its portrayal. Marlon, oh. Remember Marlon? We talked about yeah. this in 1973. Right. Marlon Brando uh, in 1975 by Robert De Niro as a young Vito. That's and then, right. And then both actors never bothered to attend the ceremony. And Brando actually rejected the award. Remember? That, that, yeah. About that, yeah. Yes, okay, I do. Good. You remember. Cool. So you're not all the way. I knew, I knew that already. Remember? That oh, was you something knew I already before? had known. Yeah. Oh. Well, so there you congratulations. go. Congratulations. You know it all of the Oscars. I accept your apology. Yeah. And there was no streaker at this Oscars, unfortunately. No. But it was the 47th annual. 47. Pretty oh, cool number. God. That was my lucky number. Because you were a high school football, 47 is why. High school football number, 47. biggest Al Bundy loser. I still am a loser. You are Al Bundy. care about it, yeah. All right, what's It was fun. It was an accomplishment. My body is wrecked because of it. Saturday, April 12th, 1975, Elton John takes over the Billboard number one spot. With? With, this is the song you thought the other one was. Philadelphia Freedom. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what do you know about this song? No, not not much. It was written by Elton John and Bernie Taupin as a favor to John's friend, tennis star Billie Jean King. Is that what it was about? Well, Billie Jean King was part of the Philadelphia Freedom's professional tennis team. Oh. The song features an orchestral arrangement by Gene Page, including flutes, horns, and strings. Yeah, I'm not a fan of this song. Elton, because of Billie Jean King. No, King? I, there's a lot of Elton John. I don't. I just don't get it. Like Benny and the Jets, B -b 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 and Benny this and the and Jets, Crocodile Rock, which is an awful song. Like I just, there's certain Elton John, I just don't get it. It's well, like, you're gonna piss a lot of people off. I love Benny and the Jets, and I think this one's pretty good. Elton John met Billie Jean King in 1973. I mean, there's songs I really like. Like I love the song Daniel, and and I love this. You mean Ben? No. Uh, according to reporters for CNN, they have since built a powerful partnership in philanthropy, raising hundreds of. Millions of dollars for equal rights and for HIV-AIDS causes. So okay. because you hate this, you hate 
HIV and AIDS causes. I, all right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so Elton John really liked Billie Jean King and uh, and uh, wrote the lyrics to what would become Philadelphia Freedom, dedicated to her uh, because of her team. And uh, at the time, King had just been ranked the world's number one woman's player, women's player for the fifth time in the previous seven years. And Sweet. The, and the whole battle of the sexes thing happened. Um, I did have feedback from somebody who was a young person around this time. They said they remember the battle of the sexes was like a, a big deal. Everybody oh. was talking about it everywhere, but it was not real. Like it wasn't a real competition. They were just like playing together. Like they were just doing it for fun. Like just they like, did. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was. It wasn't like ser- a cutthroat game. Like it was like a charity game. Like they're oh. just messing around. But uh, it was everybody talked about it. It was like, unprecedented at the time. Okay. And then on Saturday, April 26th, we got a new number one song on the Billboard charts. Okay. B.J. Thomas. We already did Raindrops Have Fallen on My Head, right? Yeah, and this one I don't think I had ever heard of. Um, do you know this song? Yeah. Hey, won't you play another somebody done somebody wrong song? I kind of like this song. You do? Yeah, a little bit. I think it's because it reminds me of being little. Like, it's not, I'm not thinking of it in a purely artistic way. It just, it reminds me of being a little kid. It's a nostalgic song. And so it's nostalgic to me, yeah. It's hard to separate that out, I think, sometimes. Are you you crying? No. Oh, B.J. Thomas is only, the only thing he ever did good was the Growing Pains theme song. All right. Which you refuse to admit you're wrong about. I thought we were talking about the Golden Girls theme song. That's what you said. No, that was Andrew Gold. That's what I thought it was originally Then I remembered. It was Growing Pains. All right. We're not rehashing our lives. Anyway, this song, this song by B.J. Thomas, in 1976, it was performed by the Muppets on the Muppet Show. It was? Yeah. That song? Yeah. That's pretty funny. Yeah. You know, sometimes they did like melancholy type stuff. Yeah. And then on May 3rd, 1975, Tony Orlando and Dawn. Oh, Jesus. Are back again. What uh, is it? And they take over the Billboard charts with... What did they he sing don't last time? Love You. Oh, if he don't love you like I love you. That one? If he did, he wouldn't break your heart. Yeah, that sounds like it's right. Um, yeah, Tony Orlando and Dawn. And I didn't realize that Dawn wasn't a person. I thought it was. Oh. Two, I thought it was two people. I thought it was it, like. A, I thought so too. I thought like Tony Orlando and some woman. Some woman named Dawn. Dawn. Yeah, no, Dawn is like the name of the group. It's Dawn, like. Oh. Like Dusk Dawn. Yeah. So it's just Tony Orlando, this guy with a mustache, and this group of ladies who are. Oh, it's um. I didn't know that. You just blew my mind. No, and remember what I talked about at one point. I mentioned Dawn was a chick. One of the singers was Telma Hopkins, who was on. Yeah. Uh, Give me a break. Oh, okay. So in the video, you can see. It's a terrible video, but... Um, you can see her. But she's in there in the backup. She's one of the singers for Dawn. Is that the song you thought yep. it was? So anyway, there's that. Yeah, so Dawn is not a woman. It's a group Oh, of my God. I just blew your mind, huh? Yeah, you, you didn't did. know that either. I, I bet a lot of people think that. Well, it took me a while to get that. Too through my head and reading about it, I was mm-hmm. like, "Oh, Dawn's not a person." It's like, why doesn't she have a last? Or, you know, Tony Orlando and Dawn, or why is not Tony and Dawn Orlando? Or right. Uh, yeah. So anyway, um, when Tony Orlando and the other members of Dawn were mm-hmm. waiting in the lobby to go on at a Golden Globes award ceremony, Orlando spoke with Faye Dunaway and her then husband, Peter Wolf, lead singer of the Jay Giles Band. What? Yeah. Faye Dunaway was married to yes. the lead singer of the J. Doesn't Niles Band? that blow your mind? Yes. So I immediately had to stop what I was doing and Google those two yeah. names together to see them together. Yeah. And it's weird. Like, Is it? Yeah. Like, she's Faye Dunaway, and he's yeah. <laughs> Jake Isles' guy. Like, But they were married, yeah. So um, anyway, while they were to pass the time before going on, the two began singing Faye Dunaway and Tony Orlando began singing various R&B songs from the 60s, including Butler's He Will Break Your Heart, which the couple recommended that the group record on an upcoming album, and Orlando contacted Mayfield, requesting permission to do a remake, but to change the song's title to the opening lines 
uh, he don't love you like uh, yeah. And Mayfield gives permission. So this is really just a remake, but they changed some of the words. Okay. So there you go. And, it, and because he was talking to Faye Dunaway, who was married to the Jay Giles, Jay Giles band. band guy, yeah, which like most of that, yeah, I don't, I didn't even follow. Care about. But the but well, they were the talking. They, they came up with the idea for the married. song while he's talking to Faye Dunaway, good ready for the Golden Globes. But, right. But she was sitting there with her Jay Giles band guy. Peter Wolf. Okay. That's, That's crazy. crazy. I did not know he was married to her. That's nuts. Sunday, May 4th, 1975, the very next day, uh, right after that song became the number one song on the Billboard charts, Mo Howard died. Oh, he did. Remember early in the year we talked about mm-hmm. Larry Fine died. Okay. Uh, Mo died of lung cancer at age 77 on May 4th, 1975 at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles where he had been admitted a week earlier. Um, I wonder um, how long they performed for and, and like what they did after they were done. Did they go to those one of those nursing homes first washed up well, stars? Remember I, or? That's the story I told you last time. That's why we talked about that. Larry was at a nursing home for oh, stars. Right. That's, that's what we right. talked about. Yeah. So, and Mo would go visit them. Uh, and Mo was okay. And But they were they were just, they had just Because they were on. brothers in real life, right? No, no, not Larry. Larry was not a brother. Mo and Mo Curly, and Cur- Mo Curly and Shemp were brothers. You sure Curly was? Yeah, Mo and Curly and Shemp were brothers. Okay. Howard, they're the Howard. Oh brothers. right, okay. And Larry was their friend. So I, I love the three students. But uh, they remember I said they were doing another sh- a new show. Yeah. Like in the seventies called Kooks, and you can find yeah, it on YouTube. Right. And it's like color, but it's like a, a whole different show. Um, which I'm sure they're just slapping the shit out of each other though. Yeah. Uh, but. But then Larry had a stroke and he got sick and whatever. So I wonder Mo, how many Mo times they in. they really injured each other doing that. Oh, they had to really hurt each other and yeah. damage and stuff. Um, but anyway, uh, um, Mo was a heavy smoker for much of his adult life. Uh, can you imagine? Can you can you picture that? Like Mo the guy smoking? who plays Mo sitting there smoking a cigarette. Yeah, I mean, he always looked like a smoker. Like his but, face but like little... having him not act like a stooge, just just being like regular, I can't picture it. Yeah. So yeah. you know, we didn't have the we didn't have like the access to stars being themselves yeah. back then. Like he's not in talk shows. But you can find, and stuff yeah, like he, that. he was actually. You can find was on YouTube really? like he had white hair, and when he's older, and he was on a couple. Talk shows. I've seen those. Just because for me, it's yeah. fascinating to see the Stooges not being Stooges because they're always just right. Stooges. That's so, what I'm saying. Yeah, there's some videos on YouTube of him on different shows and stuff in the 70s. Oh, really? Um, but he here's the sad thing about this. Well, I mean, not that it's, it's all sad because Moe's dead, but his wife, Helen Schoenberger, died of a heart attack later that year. Um, and I think she probably broke, broke, yeah, died of a broken heart. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, because Moe's dead. Right. All right. Uh, at the time of his death, Moe was working on his autobiography titled I Stooge to Conquer. It was released in 1977 as Moe Howard and the Three Stooges, which I'm, I am now going to... Want to get that? I want to read that. His book. autobiography. Yeah. I know everything about the Stooges. Um, I never knew that about you. Well, you know how I... You know, um, my... My great uncle's mm-hmm. dad was Hans Hall. We right. were going with Bowery Boys, and he was good friends with Shemp. Oh, with Shemp. Shemp Howard, okay. yeah. Shemp and, and uh, Hans Hall were buddies, and so I've heard some stories like that, which is just, to me, yeah. it's fascinating that anybody knows Shemp personally. Like, I know someone who knows Shemp personally. Like, well, it's, you don't know It's like Hans a different Hall. world. I met him. Oh, you did? Yeah. Well, I met him once. Okay. You're really reaching the stars. You get your feet on the ground, and you're reaching up for those well, stars. Well, he's my uncle's uncle. He's my uncle's father. Like, he yeah. knows him really well. So just hearing him tell stories of Shemp yeah. being at their house and stuff. Yeah. I also have a guy I work with who's who grew up in Vegas and stuff, and uh, his dad would play cards with Red Fox. Oh, really? And so when he was a kid, Red Fox would be over playing poker in the kitchen oh, while he was a kid funny. running around. And, and Jack Sue from Barney Miller. Oh, like, was so it cool. there, too? Like, he just was a little kid walking around. Jack Sue was in his house. Yeah. And Red Fox is so cool. Anyway, that kind of stuff is cool. Like, I, it's more cool to me than just being regular people playing cards and sitting around doing whatever than, like, anything else. I don't know. Yeah. Never mind. Pipe down. <laughs> I apologize. And then after Mo died uh, the next week, Saturday, May 10th, mm-hmm. Betamax was released. Betamax. Remember Betamax? Yes, I do. For you millennials, this is a consumer-level analog recording and cassette format of magnetic tape for video. So think VHS, but smaller. 
I thought they were big. No, they they were were like laser disc size. No, no. It looked just like a VHS, but it was smaller. Oh, okay. And it should have probably won, but and a lot of times I remember there's people that thought, oh, Betamax is going to go. That's going to win. That's going to be the one. Away and VHS. I wonder why. Um. Yeah. What the bonus was, like I I never had a Betamax, so I have no idea how it even works. It's just like a VCR tape. It's the exact same thing, oh, just okay. smaller version. It's just like VCR is like this, beta was like that, you know. And they came out and then you around to, the same time. When you went to the video store, it was like there was the beta section and the VHS section. I think uh, I think so. Yeah. They were? You remember that? I do okay. remember that. I remember somebody down the street, they had a Betamax. Yeah. And they would record stuff on Betamax, and they only had, you know, Betamax. And they were like, oh, this is... This is the way to go. And but I remember it, it, you couldn't, they weren't interchangeable while, at all. It, no, they weren't. But it was like Coke and Pepsi, but it was like they were competing with each other, which right. was going to take over. Yeah. And one was going to become the next media. Yeah. And uh, it was Betamax VHS. lost. But I remember everybody thought Betamax would win. At least I thought that. Anyway. Yeah. VHS. It became a joke. Yeah, then it became a joke. Remember Betamax? Oh, you got that on Betamax? Yeah. Oh, that was great. Uh, I had a Betamax to, te- to sell, sell you. That's right. Yeah, Betamax, and then but I've asked people I work with who are millennials because mm-hmm. I, I like to just test them. Like I want to like, what do millennials know? They have no idea what it is. They don't know what Betamax is. Oh, I'm sure not. I'm it's, sure. Yeah, I guess why they would don't. they? Why would they? Yeah, I I, I'm not judging them. Like my kids wouldn't know, but why would they know what it is? There's a it's lot of people weird. that want to know what Betamax is. I, I know what it is. Well, yeah, because you're an old fuck. Hey, I sleep with a Betamax. Wait, with your your wiener stuck in one. Well, you don't have to tell everyone. No, I just had to. I'll get off eventually. I had to I'll get it off of there. Finally, bring that out. And then on Tuesday, May thirteenth, nineteen seventy-five, Jake the Snake Roberts made his wrestling debut. Oh, Jesus! The son of Blackjack Mulligan, Jake the Snake Roberts. You know the guy who carried a snake to the ring and he yeah. knocked people out. And then he he DDT him and then he put a snake on him. He's that old. Yeah, he made his debut, so he was a young guy, but he wasn't right. the snake yet. He was just like a guy with long pants. And he was real all tall right. with a mustache. But Jake the Snake, his thing is that he's not built at all. Like, mm-hmm. he doesn't work out or have any muscles. He just does all kinds of meth. <laughs> what? what? Yeah. yeah. He, That's his thing? Yeah. He you said met, this is his thing. Like, his whole thing was, like, you know, most wrestlers are all built. Right. Beefy. I like, know that. Yeah. He didn't have any muscles at all. He's just a tall guy. And then he, he did tons of drugs <laughs> and, like, went off the deep end and somehow was nuts. And there's a, there's a documentary on Netflix about him. Oh my god! Jake the Snake Roberts being just like fucked up, like his whole family doesn't talk to him, and he's just like oh, that's bizarre on meth. But DDP saved the day with DDP yoga. Diamond Dallas Page saved him. Oh my god! It's a great Netflix documentary. All right, what's what's seen. next? What? Why are you upset? It's a great feel good story. Jake the Snake's good now. He's good with his family and everything, and he stopped doing meth. Saturday, May twenty fourth, nineteen seventy five. Earth, Wind, and Fire take over the Billboard number one spot. Uh, is it sh- uh, Shining Star? Yes, it is. Can you see the screen? Is that why you said that? Can no. My, okay. No. Shining Star. Yeah. I'm a shining star. No matter who you are, shining bright to see what you can truly be. Uh, the song, the concept for the song came to Maurice White while strolling at night during the band's recording of That's the Way of the World. He was inspired by looking up at the starry sky and took his ideas about the song to the other band members. And they all said, that's stupid. But he did it anyway. No, they did not. They might have. You're making some shit up. Anyway, the song is noted for the way the instruments drop out during the last repeated choruses, with the group singing the final lines a cappella, followed by the song's abrupt end. You remember that? Um, you love that song? Yeah, I do know the end. You love it, though? Is it's it your a favorite? nice disco tune. Is it your favorite? It's not my favorite, Is no. it the only thing you listen to every day? No. Okay. Do you like anybody in this on this podcast more than a friend? Would <laughs> <laughs> you please move on? There, I mean, just wonder: is there anybody in the podcast that you kind of like? You know, you like All to right. see outside of the I'm podcast. I'm not going to dignify that with an answer. Okay. Well, just let me know if you ever feel that way. I'll just uh, I'll, okay. For some, uh, the bad thing is, I knew you were going to say that. That's the worst part of it all. But you still laughed. I know because because I knew you were going to say that. Oh, that you weren't laughing because it was funny. You laughed because I was going to say it. Well, because you're so predictable. What? 
that I knew you were going to say You know, that. I'm predictable to you because you've been married to me for 46 years. Okay, what is the next May thing? May 31st, 1975. This is all just songs this year. Apparently, There's a lot of songs to get to. So this is another, yeah. another new number song. This is the number one song. Okay. Freddie Fender. Hmm. Before the next teardrop falls. <laughs> this is terrible. We I looked this I up. Knew. Remember we looked this up and we're like, who the hell is that? And Freddie uh, Fender oh, looks I terrible. Sort of do. He looks just like. Oh, like he's just Is he like black hair and chubby? Yeah, real chubby and sweaty and like <laughs> I don't know. He just he's just like Freddie Fender. I'm trying to think if I knew that was a name. Is it in Spanish? Yeah, part of it's in Spanish. Well, get to the English part. I'm not going to know this part. Maybe I found one that's all in Spanish. Hold on. I don't recognize that song at all. It's awful. Yeah, and then some of it's in Spanish. Um... um so part of the song is in Spanish? <clears throat> yeah, I guess. Let me see. Uh, it was written in 1967, and it's been recorded more than two dozen times. Uh, the original version was by Dwayne D. and was on the country charts. Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis recorded one in 1969. Um, and then in 1974, record producer Huey Mill... Mm -hmm. Approached okay. Fender about overdubbing vocals for an instrumental track. Fender agreed, performing the song bilingual style. Sing the first in English and then in Spanish. And it only took a few minutes. And he was just kind of messing around. Uh, he was just trying to get it over with. And then it immediately took off in popularity. Then released to country radio in January of 75. And went to the number one spot on the Billboard charts in May. Uh, why? I have no idea. Cause yeah, that, it's pretty that shitty. doesn't sound good to me. I don't like it. But... It doesn't mean it's not good. Okay? Okay, everybody? It's not good. I'm pretty confident. Well, Saturday, June 7th, you might change your tune when John Denver takes over the Billboard charts. Oh, is it? Week. Um, thank God I'm a country boy? Yes. Thank God I'm a country boy. You, is that all you know from it? No, I, yeah, it's got something. Cakes on the griddle. Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle. Thank yeah, God I'm a good. country boy. Um. The song was written by John Martin Summers, a guitar, banjo, fiddle, mandolin player in Denver's backup band on December 31st, 1973, coincidentally Denver's 30th birthday, when he was driving from his home in Aspen, Colorado to L.A. The song is remarkably similar to a 1973 song by Arlo Guthrie from his album Last of the Brooklyn Cowboys, entitled Uncle Jeff. Really? Yeah, apparently. I listened to it. Yeah, they both kind of sound, but all that stuff sounds to me. That's very similar. Country type yeah. stuff. And then on June 14th, 1975, America takes over the number one spot. With um, Horse With No Name? Sister Golden Hair. Oh, God, I do know that. You do? I, didn't, I, I, I don't know it, it by this name, though. Like, I, I know it. I know I know that song, but it doesn't say that hardly in it. The yeah. lyrics were largely inspired by the works of Jackson Brown. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I know this one. Yeah, you, like you know the sound of it more mm -hmm. than. Mm-hmm. Thinking about you, sister golden hair. That's where he says it. Yeah, okay. Well, that's good. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I remember, the video looked dumb, like crazy and weird in the 70s, I guess, but all the videos did then but yeah anyway yeah i think that's a pretty good song but that was the number one song then okay and then on friday june 20th mm -hmm. 1975 yes you know prior to 1975 mm -hmm. summers were considered the graveyard season for movie releases Oh. Did you know that? Like they just didn't put out movies in the summers because it was like yeah nobody's they didn't put them out at yeah, all i mean i mean they did, but nothing. Like they didn't. There wasn't blockbuster. There was no, no summer blockbuster right. movies no until such 1975. Thing. Um, 
And over 67 million people in the U.S. went to see this film when it was initially released in 1975, making it the first summer blockbuster. Yeah. You know what it is? Jaws? Yep. Robert oh, Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss. That's a good movie. Yeah. We, we watched that. We did watch this one. It is good. It does hold up. Robert Shaw and Richard Dreyfuss could not stand each other, and the two argued all the time. Did you know that? Really? And that resulted in some good tension between Hooper and Quint. Yeah, it did. Though respected as an actor, Robert Robert Shaw's trouble with alcohol was a frequent source of tension during filming. He kind of looked like... You could tell he was yeah. an alcoholic. Like he looked rough. Yeah, he did. In later interviews, Roy, Sh- Roy Scheider described his co-star as a perfect gentleman whenever he was sober. All he needed was one drink, and then he turned into a competitive son of a bitch. Wow. According to Carl Gottlieb's book, The Jaws Log, Shaw was having a drink between takes, at which one point he announced, I wish I could quit drinking. Much to the surprise and horror of the crew, Richard Dreyfuss simply grabbed Shaw's glass and tossed it into the ocean. Oh, man. When it came time to shoot the infamous USS Indianapolis scene, Shaw attempted to do the monologue while intoxicated as it called for the men to be drinking late at night. Nothing in the take could be used. A a remorseful Shaw called Steven Spielberg late that night and asked if he could have another try. The next day of shooting, Shaw's electrifying performance was done in one take. That whole monologue, remember that whole monologue? Yeah, oh, I love that monologue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is all according to uh, IMDb. Wow. And then according to writer Carl Gottlieb, the Three line, men went in. What did li- he say? Something like, uh, how many men went in? I can't remember. Three, uh, I don't remember. But according to uh, Carl, uh, Carl Gottlieb, the line, you're going to need a bigger boat, was mm-hmm. not scripted. Yeah, I heard that. I've heard that before. Yeah, um, and then I have one other funny thing. During pre-production, director Steven Spielberg, accompanied by friends Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, and John Milius, mm-hmm. visited the effect shop where Bruce the shark was being constructed. That's mm-hmm. what they called him, Bruce. Yeah. Lucas stuck his head in the shark's mouth to see how it worked. And as a joke, Milius and Spielberg snuck to the controls and made the jaw clamp shut on Lucas's head. Oh, my God. Unfortunately, and rather prophetically, Considering the later technical difficulties the production would suffer, the shark malfunctioned, and Lucas got stuck in the mouth of the shark. Oh, jeez. Spielberg and Milius were finally able to free him. The three men ran out of the workshop, afraid they'd done major damage to the creature. Oh, jeez. And when the, when the shark was built, it was never tested in the water. So when they put it in the water at Martha's Vineyard, it sank straight to the ocean floor. It took a team of divers to retrieve it. How funny is that? How, why, what in the world? Now, why wouldn't you test that before you put it in there? Because it was the 70s, baby. Everybody was high. That is so stupid. Everyone was drunk and on drugs all the time. <laughs> and this was a new thing. Like yeah. Nobody did this before. Probably. Yeah. Uh, now you don't even need to have a giant shark. It's all just CGI. Yeah, I know. It's kind of sad. I wonder if that Meg movie was any good. What movie? The Meg. The Meg? It's supposed to be a shark the size of a house. What? Are you thinking of Sharknado? No, the, um, there's a movie that came out called The Meg, and it's it's a shark the size of like a house. Are you saying M-E-G or M-A-G? I, Meg or Mag? I, I'm not sure which one it is. Oh. But it's <laughs> supposed to be like a dinosaur shark. Oh, really? Yeah, it was like a big summer blockbuster, This speaking of. I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no... Yeah, the kids at school are talking about it. They were? Mm-hmm. Well, you shoved those kids at school. You have my permission to shove them. That was Jaws. All right. Any other questions about Jaws? I just think it's a great horror movie. I think it It really does create, like, I love the suspenseful parts and the music. And, like, when when they're walking around the sides of that boat and you see it, like, brushing up against the sides of the boat and... And, and there's like nothing left of the boat and stuff. Oh my end. god! And like you could just it, when it was terrorizing them. And I'm never going in the ocean again. I mean, real sharks don't act like that. I don't yeah, they think. Do. Yep, they do. They all do. They're all <laughs> evil dicks. <laughs> but I don't know. I just you know I don't. I don't. Uh, my brother once said, "I like my life enough to not need to risk it to enjoy things." So you're not gonna go in the ocean ever again? Not very far. Just a little bit. You're not going to snorkel again? Uh, nope. I don't want to do that. I have no... Yeah. As soon as I start snorkeling, all I think about is that that movie where they those people get left on the ocean forever. Oh, yeah. Or, like, something crazy like that happening. I just, like, I just can't stop thinking about that stuff, and I can make myself have a panic attack. So, 
Yeah. But to me, when you snorkel, I've snorkeled before, and it's beautiful. It's neat to see the schools of fish and the coral yeah. and all that. But to me, seeing that in the water while I'm snorkeling looks exactly the same as looking at a picture, a Google image search of fish. No. Yeah. I don't see a difference. Mm, I'm come on. Fine I thought you were going to say at, at the zoo or something where I could say, okay, I can see that. Nope. But a picture the on same the as google image search there's no. no difference so i'll gladly just stay on the boat and drink some beers with the guy singing uh about jamaica all right what else anyway, anyway sorry that's not popular opinion saturday june 21st 1975 captain and Tennille take over the number one spot on the billboard charts love will keep us together yeah you know this song was written by neil sadaka was it and howard greenfield and Sadaka recorded it himself in 1973. And it didn't do well, I And guess. he released it as a single in France. Oh, okay. But then Captain Daniil covered the song uh, with instrumental backing by L.A. session musicians from the Wrecking Crew, not to be confused with Dr. Dre's Wrecking Crew. Oh, okay. Nobody would. Because they were CRU, I think. Uh, anyway. I kind of like this song. It's no, real yeah, cheesy. It is good. Yeah, I like it too. It's a cool groove. Yeah. Um, but Captain, actually, uh, somewhere in the middle of the song, you hear Tennille. Mm-hmm. She calls out Captain and says, you're not even a real fucking Captain. You, if you listen close, you can hear that. Really? She's like, you're not even a real fucking Captain, you bitch. No. no. Yeah. You're making things up. No, but he's not a real Captain. So none of that happened? No, but his name is... Do you know what his name is, what the captain's no, name is? No, I didn't know this, so I looked this song up for some reason. We talked about these guys. I don't what? know why I didn't. Daryl Dragon. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Good thing his first name's not Peter. Peter Dragon? Yeah. Oh, like Wiener? Yeah. Like dragon has Wiener? <laughs> yeah. Jeez. <laughs> oh, That's like Dragon, like the animal. Like I the know. Mythical. I know. Oh. You always, you know, I'm. I'm clean and above board, and then you yeah, bring you everything are. down to. You know, you're the reason my mom can't play our podcast for my grandma because she says she's yeah. I think grandma would like to hear you guys, but then there's just so much uh, talking about Pro- sucking dicks. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just don't know if grandma would uh, like the dick sucking stuff. You guys always talk about dicks a lot, so That's, I don't know. We do. So maybe we need to release a version where we just cut out the parts where you talk That's about dragon people's wieners. It's not fun. It's not fun, but it's awesome. Saturday, July 19th, 1975, the number one song on the Billboard chart is by Wings. Ugh. Listen to what the man says. Said. Yeah, Listen I, to what the man said. That Remember that I one? don't know. Dave Mason and Joe English play on it, on it, and Tom Scott plays soprano saxophone, and who cares because Wings. Sucks. The Wings suck. Wings sucks. Wings sucks. It's yeah. a terrible band, and it's awful. Yep. And then Monday, July 21st, 1975, according to the Almanac of the Infamous, the Incredible and the Ignored, mm-hmm. by Juanita Rose Violini, Violini, on July 21st, 1975, the Liverpool Echo reported the details of a fatal coincidence in the streets of Hamilton, Bermuda. Okay. Listen to this. You're not going to believe this. Okay. You're going to think I made all this up. Okay. But that's why I just quoted where this is from. Um, one year earlier than July 21st, 1975, so July 21st, 1974, uh-huh. a young man of 17, Neville, Neville Eben. Mm-hmm. See, I thought I had more info on this. Okay. One year earlier, a young man of 17, Neville Eben, he was 17 years old and is riding his moped happily through the streets when he was knocked to the ground by a taxi cab and killed. Okay. Right? Right. Exactly one year to the day later. Yeah. Erskine Eben, his younger brother, who was only a year younger, who was now 17. Yeah. Was killed while riding the same bike. Oh, my God. In the same intersection by the same taxi driver. Oh, no. You wait, didn't, wait, wait. didn't say that. Carrying the same passenger. What? <laughs> yes. Yes. No way. According to their father, John Henry Eben of Woodlawn Roads. Yeah. He said even the passenger in the taxis was the same in both instances. Well, how could that be? How fucked up is that? It was a year later? It was the, exactly on the same day. He was riding the same moped on the same intersection, and they got hit 
by the same taxi with the same driver and the same passenger. Now, wouldn't you? I got. There's a lot of questions I got going on here. Wouldn't you, first of all, sell that moped after your brother died on it? You would think. You would think, right? And then, and then, no way would you ride it on the same day that he died. Right. Much less in the in same the spot. same area. <laughs> but, but what do you think he was saying when he saw that cab coming? Like, holy. What, what do you think the cabbie thought? He was like, what Jesus Christ again! <laughs> I'm never gonna ride it. It's the same guy. Oh, not brother. again! Oh no. So the only other thing I thought, maybe it's not that much a coincidence. Maybe there's only like four people in the town. Yeah. Like maybe it's just the two brothers and their parent. And then the cab dad, driver and his passenger. The cab driver and that one passenger. Like maybe <laughs> that, that town only has five people in it. Yeah. So it's a good chance. It's still not a and good chance. And maybe he doesn't have brakes in his cab. And so oh the guy's God. like, ah, I guess I'll take this taxi again. I got no other way to get around. That's crazy. Isn't that nuts? Yes. I'm sure if we really dug deep, there's probably something that says it's not exactly that didn't happen. But that's a crazy story. That is a crazy story. Yeah, I love that one. I couldn't wait to get to that one. And then um, that's it for our podcast. Let's jump the no, shark. No, no, come on. No more podcast. Wednesday, July 23rd, 1975, Ryan's Hope was on. Oh, Lord. And so was a show called Tattletales. Okay. With three celebrity couples were panelists. Oh, we talked about that. Oh, we talked about Ryan's Hope. Oh, no, that was a... This was a date from the previous episode, I think. Oh. Yeah, so sorry, I won't talk July 23rd. Um, we'll skip that. Saturday, July 26, 1975, Van McCoy and the Soul City Symphony take over the Billboard number one spot. Okay. You know what they sang? No. The Hustle. Oh, do the hustle. Do the hustle. Yep. True or false? This song won the Grammy Award for Best Pop Instrumental Performance early in 1976 for songs recorded in 1975. True. Yep. <laughs> True or false? While in New York City to make the album, McCoy composed a song after his music partner, Charles Kipps, watched patrons do a dance known as The Hustle in a nightclub called Adam's Apple. True. True. True or false? <laughs> the sessions were done at New York's Media Sound Studio with pianist McCoy, bassist Gordon Edwards, drummer Steve Gadd, keyboarders. Richard T., guitarist Eric Gale and John Tropia, and orchestra leader Gene Orloff. False. Nope, true. Damn. <laughs> true or false? All right, no more of that. Every time I listen to this song, yeah. How do you I feel? get a boner. Probably true. Hey, you know, I don't. True. Well, maybe it is. I don't know. I haven't listened to the song that much. <laughs> Chances are. Can you do the hustle? You will have one because you have one most of the day. Hey, you don't. You know, this is a family podcast. <laughs> this is a fucking family podcast. All right. Stop talking about my What wiener. did you ask me? Uh, do you know how to do the hustle? I, um, sort of. Can I, you do it real quick? No, I'm not doing Let's, it right no, now. No, we'll do audio of you doing it. No, we're not. Oh, oh, that's, oh, that's pretty good. Oh, good job. I'm oh, not going to do it. Now, do the hustle. I want to see what it is. I don't know what it is. It's, it's a line dance. It is? Yeah. It's a line dance? It's like a line dance. You know, I have to say, I... Just can't get on board with line dancing. I don't really get it. They, I think you can do it with a partner. The hustle or the line hustle, dancing in general? The hustle. But, it, but it's also a line dance. I, I've seen people do it with a partner, too. But okay. it's like the same steps. But line dancing in general, like, what's your opinion on that? Do you participate? Or do you yeah, leave I, the dance I do floor? sometimes, but you nowadays I wouldn't. But... I usually just leave the dance floor. When, when I, I worked with the kids with Down syndrome, though, they, they were all, all about that. They love so it. And I they're good at it. They, they know all the steps and everything. Some of them. Well, I had one who knew all, clap your hands. I had one who knew all of, along with Michael Jackson's entire repertoire. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Michael Jackson's big in the, in Down, the Down syndrome, syndrome community. community. Yeah, that's right. I, I've known several people with Down syndrome that can do all of his dance moves <laughs> and, <laughs> and really well. I know. At, but the only thing is they do them at usually inappropriate times. <laughs> right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> <laughs> the other problem, uh, a lot of times, oh, it'll be like at the doctor's blossom. office or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, meet your new nurse. Okay, here's the whole dance from uh, from the way you make me whatever, feel. Yeah. Um, uh, so the only thing I do, uh, I either leave the dance floor or I insist on doing the line dance at mm -hmm. a wedding or something, but doing it wrong or doing it my own way. Oh, on purpose. On purpose, just to just to like just to piss, piss everybody off. off. But what I found, what I do is the reading jogs your mind dance, which in Northwood, Ohio, we all had to learn 
reading jogs your mind and turning right to read week every every year. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the song, the song you hear on our podcast when we intro the seventies. You hear that little, that little seventies mm-hmm. groove that we do. We're that's using from that. reading jogs your yeah, mind. Yeah, it's from, it's from Jeez. the recorded version of from Houghton Mifflin, the book company, textbook company. How did you get had that? a record? I knew people. I found it. I found it and recorded it. Uh, I got oh it from God. somebody who was a librarian at the elementary school. But anyway, every kid in Northwood for years, from the 70s, 80s, and everything, all did that every single year. We learned that dance. And so oh, we, we've really? all got it memorized. Like every kid in Northwood <laughs> can do it. Roll, every roll, kid roll, in, You do like a flip, flash mob. Step, kick, step, kick, side, yeah, the side, kick. I mean, everybody from Northwood knows it and can say it all. And so do you should it. do a flash mob. We should. The Northwood I mean, flash mob, well, everybody we, doing that dance. I'm telling you, we do it at different. At every reunion, somebody gets up and starts doing that, and then everybody gets up and starts doing the really? reading, jogs your mind, side, yeah, Now, what side, did the whole kick, thing have step, to do with kick. reading? Was there any reading involved It was all? during Right to Read Week. So, okay, so you were doing a dance. Yeah, it was more like for exercise. It was like to get you up and moving, and then you'd read, and then I don't know. I don't really know, get it exactly. It they taught us that, but we also did... Uh, square dancing. They taught us square yeah, dancing. Yeah, well, we did that. Which I just heard some story about why square dancing was in school. What was it? It's It has sinister... Of course it does. Uh, some president instituted that to keep people racist or something. Or to, to keep, keep the black like, people from... There's something about like, keeping... Being able con- to groove it. I can't remember. Like Something about keeping weird country music in the schools or something. I can't remember where I even saw that. Well, yeah, this is a great reporting you've done here. Yeah. Well, I just thought of it just now. I wasn't planning on bringing that up until we got to it. We kind of roundaboutly got to yes. it. But I'll look that up and report back next time. What, okay. who, what, I, one president put that in the curriculum or something, and it was like a sinister reason, but I can't remember why. Like It, it was, was like, it was because they black people know how to dance too good, and well, they, they didn't, they didn't want, want them to do it, the, yeah, their I th- dance. I think it was the thing they were afraid of white culture being erased yeah. eventually, which it really, some of it really should be. Right. Like Neil Sedaka. Uh, <laughs> yeah, an hour to July 30th, yes. 1975. I think you have oh, a little something to share with us, yeah. don't you? Okay, so I have to go back a little bit, as I sometimes do. Okay. James R. Hoffa was born in 1913. Jimmy Hoffa? Yes. Oh. And he demonstrated a natural ability to organize and lead in an early age. He rose quickly through the ranks of the Teamsters Union in the 1930s and 40s, helping to bring the local and regional unions together into a national organization. By 1957, Hoffa was president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, one of the most powerful labor unions in the United States. The Teamsters. You don't mess with the Teamsters. Hoffa didn't gain power and political muscle through grit alone. He was a friend of the working man, but he also made friends in organized crime as well. Oh, you don't say. During the early days of the Teamsters, Hoffa used mob muscle to win strikes and earn favorable favorable contracts. In return, as the Teamsters grew, the mafia was free to draw loans out of the large Teamster pension funds. Hmm. This unholy alliance led to heightened government scrutiny and high-profile federal investigations. Oh, boy. So in 1964, Hoffa was convicted of fraudulent use of the Teamsters Pension Fund and attempting to bribe a juror. Hmm, bribery. He appealed to the convictions but, w- but went to jail in 1967 to serve a 13-year sentence. President Richard Nixon commuted Hoffa's sentence in 1971 in exchange for Teamster support in the 1972 election, which I think is shady in and of itself. Which yeah, that's... Shady as fuck, but not yeah. like Nixon wasn't shady right. as fuck. Hoffa's freedom had a bigger price tag for him. Banishment from union activity for 10 years. He tried unsuccessfully in court to remove the ban, and he also attempted to rally support among his union and mafia connections. Things had changed while Hoffa had been away, though. His replacement as president of the Teamsters, Frank Fitzsimmons, was considered by business and government as easier to work with than Hoffa. Mob connections like liked Fick Simmons in the top seat because he did not invite controversy and he was reportedly more pliable than the bold brash Hoffa. So he, he Hoffa tried to build his, build his, rebuild his influence in the Teamsters from the ground up. In the process, he ran afoul of Anthony Provenzano, 
a Teamsters vice president from New Jersey who also happened to be a major mafia figure. Let me say run afoul. So he got... He butted heads with him? Yeah. Okay. Hoffa agreed to meet with Provenzano and another mafia leader, Anthony Giancarlo... No, Giacalone... Giacalone. ...to work out their problems. So um, Anthony Provenzano used to be friends with Hoffa. Okay. But now they're enemies. And he had threatened to kidnap and hurt Hoffa's granddaughter. No. Hoffa called Provenzano crazy. Mm -hmm. In 1973 and 1974, Hoffa talked to him to ask for help in supporting him for his return to power. And Provenzano refused to listen and threatened Hoffa by saying he would pull out his guts and kidnap his granddaughters. That's harsh. Yeah. Hoffa could not afford to take the threats lightly. I mean, you could just say no, not like, hey. I know. No, like, hey. And on top of that. No, I don't want. I don't want these Girl Scout cookies, and if you ask me again, I'm going to rip out your guts and kill your granddaughter. Right, exactly. Um, That's harsh. But he, Hoffa knew that there was at least two of Provenzano's political opponents were believed to have been murdered. Others who had spoken out against him had been physically assaulted. So you would think that would make him have caution, right? Right. And worry, about, like not maybe not meet with him? Yeah. The threats from the mafia that they would get rid of Hoffa were taken very seriously. There had been three visits in a short time frame to Hoffa's home and one trip to the Guardian Building Law Offices by Anthony Giacalone, an alleged kingpin in the Detroit Mafia, and his younger brother Vito. Friendly with Provenzano and believed to be related to him, they, their avowed purpose in coming was to set up a peace meeting between Provenzano and Hoffa. Mm. Hoffa's son viewed the peace meeting overture as, over, as an only a pretext. He was convinced that Gia Cologne was setting his dad up for a hit. Oh. Even yeah. Hoffa himself was becoming increasingly uneasy each time the Gia Colones arrived. Mm. The meeting would take place at the Maccus Red Fox M-A-C-H-U-S. Is that how you would say that? Macus? Macus? I have no idea. Okay. A suburban Detroit restaurant. Machu's? So then Machu, M-A-C-H-U, Machu? I don't know. Machu's? So now we're at July 30th, 1975. Oh, so this is the last time he was seen, right? So this was the same time. If he would have just... Well, I haven't gotten there yet. He's not disappeared yet. Right, but if he would have... He was about to meet these... About to meet them, that's right. These Gambinos? Is that what you say? Gia Cologne? Is it Gambino? Is that a bad word? Is that like a... I don't know. Mafia guy, like he's about to meet these guys who have killed other people and, and disappeared them, dis- have made people disappear. But if he would have just stayed home, yes, and watched celebrity bowling, <laughs> which was on with starring Jed Allen, Ed Ames, and Joseph Campanella, you know who those I don't guys know are. Any, uh, you do. Joseph Campanella is this guy. Like if you Google all three of these, yeah, or IMDb them, you will know him. Joseph Campanella is known for. Um, He's been in everything. He's on One Day at a Time. He played Ed Cooper, and he was on Mannix that. and Hangar 18. Okay. Um, Ed Ames, I don't really know, but the other guy, uh, uh, Jed Allen, he was from Days of Our Lives. You knew him as the, I think he played like I Mickey or somebody. I don't watch Days of Our if Lives. You watch Days of Our Lives. He was on soap operas and stuff. Okay. Um, so they were all so three bowling like together. B, B-level celebrities. Yes. Yeah, they, they were bowling on Celebrity Bowling. Okay. Time. Um, and the Jed Stafford show, the Jim Stafford variety show was on. It was a country music guy who sang Spiders and Snakes and Swamp Witch. He had a dumb show. Okay. Anyway. And he could have stayed home and watched those shows. Yep. Celebrity Bowling instead. instead. Um, he left home in his green Pontiac Granville at 1.15 p.m. He, so he's probably like, it'll be real quick and I'll get home in time for Celebrity Bowling. Everything will be great. Before heading to the restaurant, he stopped in Pontiac to talk to his close friend, Louis Linto. Oh, boy. Linto and Hoffa used to be enemies, but had since mended their differences, and by the time Hoffa left prison, Linto became his unofficial appointment secretary. Oh. It was well known in both underworld and labor union circles that Linto acted as a buffer for Hoffa. Okay. And that if anyone needed a face-to-face meeting with him, they needed to contact Linto first. Okay. So, but Linto saw him, and it was the last one to see him alive. Is that right? Is that right? Right, 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 right. Louis so, Linto. Um, at 2.15 p.m., then Hoffa calls his wife because he's annoyed because these guys aren't there yet. Hey, where are these guys? Where are these, where are these goombas? Yep. So he... Forget about it. He complained, where the hell is Tony Giacalone? I'm being stood up. Where the hell is this guy? I'm picturing Joe Pesci. Didn't yeah. he play him in a movie or something? No, Jack Nicholson played him in the movie. Oh, he did? Mm-hmm. Oh. Hoffa? His wife told him she hadn't heard from anyone. He told her he would uh, be home at 4 p.m. 
Several eyewitnesses saw Hoffa standing by his car and pacing the restaurant's parking lot. I'll be home at 4 p.m. just in time for celebrity bowling. Two Does that sound like Jack Nicholson? No, no. Not at all. Two men that. saw Hoffa emerge from the Red Fox after a long lunch and recognized him. They stopped to chat with him briefly and to shake his hand. At 3.27 p.m., Hoffa called Linto, complaining that Gia Cologne was late. That dirty son of a bitch, Tony Jock, set this meeting up, and he's half an hour late, Hoffa said. Linto Forget told about him it. to calm down and, and to stop by his office on the way home. Hoffa said he would and hung up. At 7 a.m. the next morning, Hoffa's wife called her son and daughter by telephone, saying that their father had not come home. Oh, even though they, they were late, Yep. he never came home. On his way to the house, Hoffa's daughter, on, on her way to the house, Hoffa's daughter claimed to have had a vision of her father, who she was already sure was dead. He was slumped over wearing a dark-colored short-sleeved polo shirt, is what she says. She's a vision in her mind? Yeah, that's what she says. Oh, maybe she's got magical powers. Maybe yeah. she's a wizard. Right. I think that's what we're supposed to believe. Maybe she can animate a half-eaten bag of Funyuns. At 7.20 a.m., Linto went to the Marcus Red Fox and found Machus. Hoffa's unlocked car in the parking lot, but there Marcus. was no sign of Hoffa or any indication of what happened to him. Wait, his car was there? Yes. It was just there, and empty. Unlocked. Mm-hmm. Unlocked. He called the police, who later arrived at the scene. The state, popo. state police were brought in, and the FBI were alerted. At supper time, Hoffa's son, James P. Hoffa, filed a missing persons report. I don't know why his wife didn't do it. Maybe she, you know, who knows? Everything else we're talking about. Maybe back then women yeah. weren't allowed to. It's probably true. Years of extensive investigation involving numerous law enforcement agencies, including the FBI, came to no definite conclusion. Gia Cologne and Provenzano, who denied having a schedule, have scheduled a meeting with Hoffa, were found not to have been near the restaurant that afternoon. Hoffa was declared legally dead on July 30th, 1982. Oh, they actually found him and declared him dead in 1982 the same nope, day? No, they didn't find him. Oh, they didn't, but they declared him dead the same day Lewis and Clark was aired. It was a sitcom on NBC uh, starring uh, Gabe Kaplan. For naive New Yorker, Stuart Lewis, Gabe Kaplan, has a strange, some would say twisted ambition. He wants to own a country music club. His wife and kids hate the idea. Despite their misgivings, Stuart moves his family to Luckenbach, Texas, where he bought the Nassau Country uh, Nassau County Cafe, a joint that has had nine owners in the last six years and sports a sign that says, always under new management, while his sidekick, Roscoe Clark, played by Gooich Kook, stands by. <laughs> Uh, Stuart, Stuart lets fly one-liners and bad puns. His sidekick was Gooich Kook. Okay. That was the actor that played him. But anyway, the series featured an episode with guest appearance by uh, the guy who played uh, Epstein from Welcome Back, Cotter, yeah. and the guy who played Freddie Boom Boom Washington. They all they had like guest spots on the show. Uh, but it was it was uh, Welcome Back, Cotter's new show. All right. It was called Lewis and Clark. So here, my last TV. little part of this is the oh, the same time this happened. What yeah. happened while Lewis and Clark was on? Well, this is um, the theories. I'm going to just quickly go into some theories of what ha- what people think happened. Wait, but you didn't or, t- explain why he was de- why was he declared dead? Because think about it, it was exactly to the day. Yeah. What was that? Fif- 5 years. 15 years. It was 85 80 What did I say? 85? 82. 7 years later. 7 years to the day. Yeah. yeah. So So they yeah. just uh, gave you up. Can, you can declare somebody legally dead. If there's no sign of him or any progress. Yeah, right. Okay. I thought they were like some But that way, cause, like, oh, because his teeth. wife couldn't get, wouldn't have been able to get any death benefits until oh. he's declared dead. So she had to so wait seven years. She had to years. wait seven years, yeah. Oh, and, and, and by that time, she was already uh, dating a new fella named uh, Mark. Your glasses are like high up on your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're making your eyes look like you got four eyes. Well, maybe I do have four eyes. You She's dating a guy eyes. named Mark anyway, and he, he worked at Food Town in okay. the produce section. So but here's Mark one theory. One theory was Jimmy Hoffa was shot, dismembered, frozen, and then buried in the cement at the old Giants Stadium in oh. East Rutherford, New Jersey. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that. Specifically, Hoffa was buried under Section 107. When oh. 107. 107. When the stadium was demolished in 2010, so convinced was the FBI the story was bunk that the agency didn't even bother to search the site. What? They didn't even look? Nope. Didn't even look. Shit. Another Somebody theory did. is that Hoffa was crushed by a 40 cubic yard trash compactor outside the Raleigh House restaurant in the Detroit suburbs, five miles from where he vanished. The mafia famously ran the sanitation business, so it was a relatively routine hit. Yeah, it's easy to get rid of them. Uh, theory number three, according to Joseph Franco, Hoff, Hoff, Hoffa's former associate and self-complaint, I'm sorry, 
Hoffa's former associate and self-proclaimed thief, extortionist, leg breaker, and hired killer, Hoffa was shoved alive out of an airplane over hired one of the goon. Great Lakes by a couple of federal agents. Oh, really? Federal agents. Hired goons. Hired goons. Goon, hired goons. Before his death, mobster and former friend of Hoffa, Frank the Irishman Sheeran, confessed to the hit Ed and, and said that Jimmy was shot to death and then cremated in a trash incinerator in the Detroit suburbs. That's probably right. Interestingly enough, Sheeran was portrayed by Robert De Niro in an upcoming Netflix original movie based on Sheeran's account of the Hoffa murder. Al Pacino will be playing Hoffa. Oh, and we'll take these. Uh, we'll take the uh, advertising dollars uh, for plugging for that. That's right. Uh, so now you guys... That show will be super successful because they people heard about it on American Timeline, the greatest <laughs> podcast, podcast in the world. Hoffa was shot with a stun gun, was another um, theory. He ground up at an ironworks, placed in a steel drum, and shipped to the Everglades where his remains were dispersed. Some accounts note that he may have been partially digested by alligators. Notice a trend in these theories. They're just crazier and crazier. crazier They keep jumping the shark. The theories are jumping the shark. Uh, Theory number six. According to mafia chauffeur turned stool pigeon Marvin Elkind, Hoffa was kidnapped, killed, and then buried in the wet concrete foundation of Detroit's Renaissance Center. Elkind noted ominously to the New York Post in 2011, practically every union carpenter in and around the city was called in to rush the construction of wooden forms needed by for pouring concrete at the Renaissance Project. Forget about it. What's a stool pigeon? What? What's a stool pigeon? I think it's somebody who like snitches. Poop? Oh. I think stool pigeon? Or, I don't so know. Does that have to do with stool and poop? All right. And then, I have a question, I, though. I'll, okay. Well, you finish up, and then I'll ask All you. All right. Number seven, Hoffa was stabbed in the head with a hunting knife, placed in oh. a steel drum, set on Yikes. fire, buried, then dug up, and compacted inside a car and shipped to Japan as recycled scrap metal for use in new cars. Yeah, An investigative sense. reporter, Jerry Stinecki, wrote, noted in the New York Times, it was the ultimate insult, a non-union market. Huh. <laughs> that would just, like, piss him off, like, just to, yeah. just to dig into him. And those are the, just the most popular theories surrounding oh, the Jimmy well, there's, Hoffa. like, hundreds of more. Of course, none of these stories have amounted to anything, leaving the mystery unsolved. The official FBI report on the Jimmy Hoffa case, the so-called Hoffex memo, yeah. suggests a motive but not a method. According to the Chicago Tribune, quote, the memo says a plan was conceived in New Jersey by Teamsters with ties to the mafia to stage a hit on Hoffa in Detroit. According to federal authorities, the hit was set up out of fear of Hoffa's possible return to power in the Teamsters. Specifically, the memo suggests that Hoffa was killed so he wouldn't once again gain control of the shady Teamsters Central State Pension Fund, which was worth around a billion dollars unadjusted for inflation. Yeah, yeah, so the people in charge of that in the power, they're the ones who want him dead. Yes. Hoffa's son, James P. Hoffa, elected head of the Teamsters in 1999, agreed that the mafia was involved and even ran his campaigns on the back of that conviction. The mob killed my father. If you vote for me, they will never come back, he told a crowd of truck drivers in 1996, which is pretty, that's so stupid. Can you imagine the smell of a crowd of truck drivers? But imagine No that. offense to truck imagine, drivers. <laughs> isn't that the stupidest campaign slogan? That he was going to get rid of the mafia? The mob killed my father. If you vote for me, they will never come back. Yeah, he'll get rid of the mafia? What he's really doing is name-dropping his father. Well, yeah, but you know, oh, vote for me because I'm Jimmy Hoffa's son. Yeah, well, yeah, but he's also not giving any methods how he's going to get rid of the mafia. No. Did he win? Yes. Oh, he did? Yes, well, he was elected head in 1999. Well, if there's one thing that's true, it's elections are all, like, idiots will vote for anything. But even if most people agree <laughs> that the mob was responsible, there remains the continued fascination with the whereabouts of Hoffa's body more than 40, 40 years later. As NPR's Alan Greenblatt suggested in 2013, that fascination is instinctual. Everyone knows we all must die, but people who go missing entirely tap into primal fears. So, like, my, here's my question: Like, why? Surely, there's been tons of mafia hits and people disappeared and died. Right. That's what they do. The mafia does that. Yeah. They kill people. They bury them. They put them places. Yeah. Why does everybody care so much about Jimmy Hoffa and not, not all the other ones? Uh, well, because he was the head of the Teamsters, I guess. Because it was more famous, or people knew him more. Yeah, like everyday I guess. people knew him, but I, I mean, that's know. a good question. I just didn't know like what made him stand out compared to all the other all the other people that have disappeared. That have, well, I don't think any like big wires. mob bosses have disappeared like that. I think like mo- like lower like guys, yeah. 
disappear, but like any of the big know. giant mob but, bosses, I don't think but, any of them have ever gone disappeared but, like that. But you think like back then in the seventies, like everybody knew who Jimmy Hoffa was, like yeah, across I think the so. country. I think so. He was in politics and stuff. Oh, so I guess that's why. I just always wondered like. What's... I mean, if Nixon commutes his yeah, sentence in exchange yeah. for having the Teamsters support him for re-election. Yeah, okay, so I guess people know Joe Arpaio. And all those mafia people Trump has. Uh, oh, yeah. Or all the people Trump has pardoned or whatever. But, uh, yeah. all right, so that's that's fair enough. Fair enough. Was it all right? I don't know. At least it's not, there's no rapes. No. That not that we know of. Yeah, not that we know of. We'll pick up in August uh, next episode, but I think that's about it for. Okay. But that's all the time we have for episode 41, and that's interesting. I never knew that much about Jimmy Hoffa or who he really was, so yeah. that's why I want to know more. So thanks for enlightening me on that. Sure thing. I didn't really get who he was, but we'll never, one thing is certain, we'll never know what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. I don't think. Yeah. Wait, there he is. Hey, Jimmy. Jimmy Hoffa's here. Well, and I think that oh, was another thing that oh. that I was just going to say. I think a lot of there was rumors that he was still alive for a long time after that. I yeah, think like I Elvis and yeah, stuff. Sure. And maybe Elvis and Tupac and, and Jimmy, Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa are They're know, all in a bar in a, some island somewhere. Yeah, islands in the stream. And that's what that song's about. Yeah, Those and three. Randy Savage. He what? Didn't, he didn't really die. I wish. Uh, that's are we not just talking about people we wish didn't no, die? No, that's <laughs> okay. not what we're talking about. All right. There's you're, so many wrestlers. You're hungover. See, the thing I don't get is, like, there's so many wrestlers that have died young, uh, but Jake the Snake Roberts is still alive somehow, and he was, did, like, so many drugs. All right. You're All hungover right. today. You're hungover. No, I'm not. Well, Drew Conley is responsible for me being hungover. Yeah. Drew Conley, friend of the show, Irish guy. America! Giant Irish guy. He's not a friend of the show. He doesn't even listen. Yeah, he doesn't listen. All right. Let's sign off. Anyway, oh, there's Jimmy Hoffa. He's with Chuck Berry. Oh, no. Get out of here, Chuck Berry. Guys, get out of here, Chuck Berry and Jimmy Hoffa. It's time to end this show. Thanks for listening. Download Matt Truman Ego Trip's music on Bandcamp. Pay for it because he deserves it, and he's awesome. His music is really good. So he plays the beginning, and he plays the end. He plays our American Timeline songs. uh, Yes, he rocks. Buy his albums. And um, send us your teeth. All right. Oh, good guy. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.